Hello and welcome to the second ever episode of the Kiramar Racing Ferret Stand. I'm your host, Mike Barrett, and this is a podcast all about getting into the Ferret Stand. The Ferrets being uh, a sports science and a data team here at Kiramar Racing. So they're always ferreting around for points of data. And the head ferret himself, Josh Cadillac Cavanaugh, is with us. Pleasure to be back, Mikey, after that great uh, inaugural uh, episode. Uh, today's topic is juveniles, and we're talking to Will Bourne, head of bloodstock over at Caracas. Um, he's just finished up at Magic Millions, buying uh, around 30 yearlings this year, where the market was pretty strong, um, considering some people thought that it might drop off. Um, and, and we've done quite well to buy a nice bunch of yearlings there um, for a good price, I think. Uh, so we'll, we'll talk to him about how he uses sort of analytics and data to basically... Uh, make a short list at the sales and identifying talent, uh, as well as talking to TK about the next part of the process and it's um, getting them onto the track and how she's sort of adapted this uh, new treadmill program to really um, educate them on the treadmill, which is a huge part of our training program once they get older. Yeah, really excited to cover. It's basically just trying to cover both sides of the coin, uh, how we use data and analytics in the selection process, uh, and then how we use it to implement training programs. Trackout's got some really interesting points she's going to make, and we know this because we're recording the intro afterwards, just a little peek behind the scenes, on um, the benefits of getting horses, two-year-olds particularly, up and going. So stick around for that. Can't wait. Kicking off today's episode that's all about juveniles, we welcome in Will Bourne, our head of Bloodstock. Wilbur, we uh, we get you live from Karaka, New Zealand, where we're uh, currently inspecting some juveniles. Yeah, hi, Mikey. How are you? Uh, over here in New Zealand, a lot better weather than last year. Sun's out. Um, the industry is very buoyant and buzzing over here at the moment with all their new announcements. Uh, racing seems really good over here and there's, there's a really good vibe, um, which is good to see over here in New Zealand. Certainly is, and we've certainly had a bit of luck over there as well. Uh, by the time this goes to air, Holly Mans will have run and hopefully won. But uh, look, before we get stuck into you know your processes and how you and Kieran work together and sort of the analysis you do, uh, how would you say the bloodstock industry's um, use of analytics has changed uh, over the years since you started? The bloodstock industry changed in a lot of ways, and that's from an analytical point of view and also a bloodstock point of view. The industry is becoming a lot more worldly. Um, we're putting a lot more emphasis on stallion statistics, uh, broodmares and crosses, um, and that is correlated to the industry becoming a lot more worldly. As I said, you know, we see an, an abundance of mares going to Franklin Southern Hemisphere and Kingman um, because they're very uh, proven stallions with great statistics, um, you know, that could have a correlation out here and inevitably does. Um, but, yeah, we look at a lot of things, whether that be uh, biomechanics that we're just starting to dabble in that at the moment and or um, pedigree and crosses and statistics and farm statistics and, you know, every every step of the way. Yeah, I think um, one there, Will, is, is sort of talking about how we look at those stallion numbers and we've talked about it before, how they can be quite biased in terms of if you're looking at prize money, prize money sort of isn't the be-all and end-all. So is it sort of, you know, black-type winnings, black-type placings that you're looking at in terms of the stallions and the crosses? Oh, sort of a little bit the opposite. You know, I put a lot more emphasis on prize money um, or looking at average earnings per runner uh, as opposed to stakes winners. You know, some stallions can be very well placed you know, a horse like Eplet, I remember he had like eight stakes winners, you know, in his first crop or something like that, or second crop, and they were in Adelaide and Tasmania and, and everywhere like that. But uh, a horse that can win over 200 grand or 150,000 is a genuine Saturday horse in Melbourne or Sydney. I'll put a, a lot more emphasis on that, um, and so I picked the stats that way. But then they can be a bit skewed if you if you are looking at staying, say, based in New Zealand over here. Prize money is obviously a lot lower. Um, so that can really throw the stats out and, and you know, not make any sense or make look, the stallions look like they're underperforming when they're not really. Stallions tend to get the headlines. They're the horses we know they go through. Um, but 
I know you and Kieran have obviously always put a lot of emphasis on mares and also broodmare size. Do you want to just talk a little bit about that? Um, yeah, well, broodmare size is, you know, there are stallions that are, that are just good broodmare size. And we do sort of prick the years when if you're looking at a, a yearling and it comes out and, you know, it's out of a reduced choice mare, a Piero mare, a Tavistock mare, it, 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 it intrigues you a lot more. Um, it's not the be-all and end-all, but uh, it certainly helps. And um, it's, it's something that we, we do look at hard. Yeah, just probably back on farms now is, is how do you look at farms in taking out all the external factors of, um, you know, the stallions, the mares that they've got, uh, and just looking at pure, you know, the ability of that, like you would if you were looking at a trainer, um, taking away from all the ability that they have in their stable. How would you look at that in terms of a farm and how good they actually are at breeding? Well, the numbers can be skewed heavily. I mean, we put an emphasis on farms, um, you know, that continue to produce good horses. And whether that be from their matings, their broodmares, um, or the way they're, they're nurtured and risen and on their land, you know, it's obviously a combination of factors. But you've got to be careful. You know, New Haven Park is a very good farm. They produce a lot of winners, a lot of Group 1 winners. But if you sort of... If you just did on their raw stats when they were supporting their own stand like Delago Deluxe, it would really sway that and make them look like they're underperforming. They don't support their own. One bad stallion can really skew the numbers, like a Widden supporting a stallion or a Newgate or a, uh, someone like that. Um, if they were supporting heavily Euro, Eurozone their first year and they had 10 in the draft, obviously he wasn't a very good stallion in hindsight. And that's, gonna, that's why you look at a like you know, that have the best broodmare and they just they don't have a stallion. They send it to all the best stallions of the current, you know, what's sexy and commercial but also what's performing. And so their statistics are through the roof that they don't have any of their first season stallions to support. There is boutique, very upper class broodmare farms would have the best statistics. This is some raw data, but you do have to take into account, you know, farms trying to make their stallions in their business and Inevitably, most stallions know goods. You do have these farms that are at business and support their stallions heavily. They can really skew the figures. You touched on first season size there. Uh, obviously, this is it's quite an inexact science, but it, it's somewhere where you and Kieran have certainly made a name for yourselves in, in punting them. What goes into that process? And obviously, you're looking at what they're getting on the ground and the, the physical and things like that. Is there anything else that you're looking at when looking at what sort of first season size you're willing to take a punt on? Well, what's worked in Australia are on-speed Australian sprinting stallions. Um, that's what we gravitate towards. Uh, you look at, you know, the um, the champion stallions in Australia that are Australian sprinters. You know, you look at Snitzel, he was, had the ability to lead. Like, I think he won all the, you know, led all the way to Oakley Plate. Fastnet Rocks, you know, I think led all the way to Newmarket just about. I'm invincible you know, led them up in a group one, used to lead in all these races, got run down by Black Caviar in in Adelaide in a group one. Not a single doubt. They're, they're on speed, precocious, um, hardy Australian sprinters that, that make it um, at Fab traditionally. So we do gravitate towards them. Uh, look, obviously a horse like the Autumn Sun isn't in that mould and um, we haven't brought it abundance. I'm not saying he can't make it. He's, he's doing a, a good enough job at the moment, but that style of horse we don't, um, you know, immediately gravitate towards, and that's just going on, on history, to be honest with you. Um, but as we know, you know, we were over here in New Zealand at the moment. Um, past year wasn't in that mould at all, and he's an exceptional stallion. So there's no rules, and I'm not saying we're always right, but um, it's just that's the style of horse that we're naturally gravitated towards um, when buying first season stallions. Yeah, just back on that with the first season stallions, it was interesting at Magic's just gone looking at too darn hot versus Blue Point. The market's done exactly what they've done, their progeny's done sort of on the track with Blue Point yet to have a winner. Too darn hot having a few. Um, and their sort of the average price has flipped at the sales. Is that an opportunity sort of for you to sort of, st- you know, stick fact, we've, you, you know, we've you know, acquired a few Blue Points um, in his first season and, and some sort of haven't gone all that well on the track for us just yet, but I think we've got a lot of sort of scope on them. Uh, is that something that you can sort of hopefully snap up a few a few cheap ones whilst his price does drop? 
Yeah, well, you always like to have the opportunity to find value when you can. Um, Kieran still has a lot of belief in Blue Point. We've got a lot of nice horses by them. And, uh, you know, we were actively buying them at Magic Millions. At the same time, we also did have a lot of two-down hots that we really rate in the We had to pay more for them. Um, but, yeah, uh, I see an opportunity there for Blue Point at the moment because we, we do believe in him. He, he's a good stallion in the Northern Hemisphere and couldn't have done much more over there. Um, we've yet to get a winner here, but... You know, we've had a lot of horses to the track. And if you've ever owned a racehorse yourself and trained, you know, I think he's had 10 runners or 8 runners to the track. To get there as a racehorse to the races pre-Christmas, you have to be very natural. You have to stand up to work. Um, you have to have some level of ability. And for him to get that amount of moving horses to the track, I think it's an effort in itself and has been slightly overlooked. All right. I'm going to let you two drive this. I want to talk about the additional tools that you touched on earlier, Will. Uh, particularly around just the pedigree ratings and also the biomechanics. I'll start with the pedigree ratings. Again, these are tools that are sort of additive to your selection process, whether it helps us filter out, et cetera. Uh, does it give you confidence uh, when the pedigree ratings sort of align with, um, you know, I guess some of the more basic data that you're working off regarding, you know, whether it's stallion stats, crosses, et cetera? It does pique your interest a bit um, on the crosses that work in, and it reminds you, you know, if you really, really like a horse on, on type and then you look at this page, you're like, well, okay, the three dams on the page all of them were unraced and there's a little bit of black to type with it, isn't it? But it's actually, you know, it, it's, it's not a, an outstanding page. It just sort of, it's not that you would go off the horse, but it, it's a tool to help you value it um, and vice versa. Uh, you know, a horse with a really good pedigree and the rating you thought, oh, was an okay type, but you'll keep it on the list because it does rate highly and then you you look at the horse and can see what goes to the ring. And if there's, if there's value there for what it is, um, you might have a bit and, and might buy it. But it does, it won't determine uh, buying a horse or not buying a horse, but it would, it would be if you keep it on a list or whether you go harder or softer or it just, it adjusts the risk appetite yeah i think it's just something that takes the mental load off having to sort of evaluate the page there for you guys when you're evaluating horses so you can primarily focus on the physical of every horse which i think is you know if you were to spit it into a predictive model i think um the physical would you know, be a 75 percent weight and maybe the pedigree is 25 percent at the end of the day um but yeah you know it's just a mental thing that you don't have to scroll through a a catalogue of 1,200 and say how their pedigrees are. I think it just helps that um, in terms of the filtering process. And we know that the pedigrees under 20, the odd one does make it to, you know, a black type race and there are anomalies with every predictive model. Uh, but for saying that, you know, uh, I think a pedigree grade on our on our grades are at 0 to 10. is about 1%, you know, sort of make a black type placing. Um, so, yeah, you're playing into the numbers at the end of the day. Um, and we, we sort of like to play into, you know, 30 and above, I think. Um, and we really like to see the, the top-ranked stallions um, progeny on each catalogue um, to really sort of highlight, you know, their, their, strong, their strong lots going through, the, through each sale and, and also on the overall year. Um, and we do see it from time to time. It's interesting just looking at pure numbers uh, where pedigree is quite high um, and obviously the, the horse sells for quite cheap is that you sort of, you do look at sort of if we do have the x-rays, there's obviously issues there, can be sometimes, um, as well as just poor physical. So it's interesting to line that up um, and get the complete picture of, of why that price may have come down um, because on pedigree it says it should go for, you know, 500 plus thousand. Um, but, you know, sometimes they go for 100 to 150 and then just tracking that moving forward, you know, are you getting value? I think there's a price point for everything. Um, and if we can get to that where we create, you know, an, ef an efficient sort of, evaluation model for yearlings that'll be the ideal scenario eventually one day well the interesting one as well is the biomechanics obviously you and kieran you've built a real reputation buying on type um and this is where it can sort of go against the pedigree ratings um and, and really just looking at the physical um obviously so much is captured by the eye how much does that sort of biomechanic analysis um assist in again is it is it backing up what you're seeing is it uh, sometimes contradicting. Um, yeah, how have you found that sort of another as another layer? Obviously, very early days with the biomechanics, we're, we're concentrating and 
and following through at the moment, it, it may uh, adjust or alter what we do very so far at the moment, but we're very much watching and seeing, keeping a record of it, finding out what, what does rate well and, and how that correlates to what we think in person. Not right at the moment we're putting a huge emphasis on it, but we're definitely, uh, we're definitely keeping an eye on it and following it through and looking back at our notes and seeing how it all transpires and um, and results on the racetrack. Uh, but at the moment, we, we definitely look at it and see how it, it matches up with our thoughts. Um, it may may adjust us slightly, um, but it, it'd be really interesting to see over the next sort of two to three years um, what data Josh pulls and, and can tell us uh, yeah, it's very interesting to look at just monitoring um, the Racing Squared product that we do use from the biomechanics side of things. And it's early days, and um, Tom Tom Wilson, the creator of that, um, he you know started to run evaluations on how his predictions have gone. And you know he's you know he had uh, Storm Boy sort of seventy five percent on a on a, an elite score. So that basically evaluates how um, the walk from the the vendor's video basically says that is against hundreds of thousands of historical examples and they regress that around becoming a black type horse um and basically it, it is looking like a linear relationship in the way that um his ratings are configured so that is a, that's a real positive um whether or not it's value add to adding it to something in a predictive model like pedigree ratings we're, we're yet to sort of know um we do need to wait until there's a bit of, bit of a sample there um but it's it is showing a real positive correlation um for something that that is uh, very interesting and sort of hasn't been done very innovative of the industry and I think it it will be moving forward a lot in this space uh, moving forward as the world around us progresses in the likes of AI and machine learning so it is a it is a big watch this space and um, hopefully yeah really something that could innovate the industry well one thing I was looking at as well is I guess this is historical analysis and something you said to me a few months ago uh, really caught my ear and it was around sort of looking back on the horses that we've passed on uh, and looking back at that and, and what we've learned from that. And you said, I think it was Kieran who said to you, you know, we're very good at looking for reasons not to buy a horse, um, but sometimes we've got to look at reasons to buy them. Is there anything you've sort of learned, any sort of, you know, internal biases you've picked up on from looking at some of the horses that we may have passed on previously that have gone on um, to defy whatever sort of limitations we thought they might have? Yeah, I mean, it's a great point. You've got to always remind yourself it's very easy, it's a very easy game to be negative in because there's more slow horses than fast horses. So when you're looking at a horse, it's very easy to, to pot it or watch it and be no good. Try and have the mindset, okay, well, why is this? What's its point of strength? Is it its girth? Is it its hock? The way it moves? Its athleticism? What, 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 when you're looking back in two years' time, you're going to say, oh, that's the reason it's fast? And... You do get an idea and it's not the luxury that you've worked closely with this horse. So when you buy this horse in the end, it's The biggest thing that I've probably adjusted is horses not having the, the biggest or most fluent walk. There are sprinters um, that, that they're only okay walkers. Um, you know, they don't have the, the biggest action. It, it, it's short. But I guess that's and then you look at those horses uh, like Kulangatta. Um, you know, she had an okay action. It wasn't bad. It wasn't great. She 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 had an okay walk. That's probably the biggest thing that I've adjusted with. Obviously, you love to see those big, loose-moving um, horses roll up and down the parade ring in a sale and just sort of fall in love with. But yeah, it's it's one thing that I've really adjusted is if they've got a got an engine room, they've got a girth, they're good to follow, good through the hocks plenty of scope and strength, you know, the, the walk you, you can produce. All righty, mate. We'll let you get back to uh, having a look at those at Cracker and we'll be, uh, whatever you purchase, we'll certainly be pushing out. Uh, we did buy some lovely horses at Magic Millions, though. Is there any that uh, we've still got some shares in that uh, particularly caught your eye? Oh, the two left. Uh, what's left at Magic? Uh, the Capitalist Philly, we burst off Kalani Park. She was for 250000 She's very short, sharp. You know very quick where she fits in life. She's a filly as well. It's a half of two stakes horses. Um, that broodmare is throwing two stakes horses by Steve Pulley. Congrats, I believe. So, to have a chance there is a better proven stallion. What a 
should have very early gone to on cheese in that mould and um, you'll know pretty quick where you stand. And then a horse uh, that there was a big strong pasty colt that we brought off New Haven Park on the Saturday night. Uh, you know, we obviously have a lot of time for the stallion. Um, he's going enormous over here in, in New Zealand. I think he'll stand at a hundred grand next year or this year I should say. He was eighty grand last year and we're trying to buy a lot of them here at the sales. Um, and he's a cult that I thought got lost in the Magic Millions. He wasn't that, you know, no one was there to buy a past year. I thought if he was here at the Cracker Sales, it would have made a lot more. So I thought he was good value. There's about 30% left at him. He's a, he's a very strong, imposing horse with plenty of strength and, a, and an engine and a girth. And I can see him being a really nice three-year-old. Yeah, I think I think just adding on that one with the Poise, I think it, it really, we do know your and... You and Kieran both love, obviously, the stallion. I think he is great value, and he, he's just going to continue to produce um, great horses moving forward. We've got one running tomorrow, actually, Yonts. Um, she's obviously very talented, and I think you're getting a bargain. Um, and same with Capitalist. You saw his prices. I think he's um, you know, getting sent some very nice mares, uh, and 250000 uh looks like a, a bargain. All right, well... Yeah, obviously, obviously the, she's precocious and usually pays... I can sort of understand a little bit the plus here being, you know, I, I, any other horse like that with a prudence going, I thought would make up on the plus, the way he looked. Um, but he will be a three-year-old. I was, I was a bit surprised with the capital story. She's very precocious. She'll be up and going early. And, you know, she's made foul average. And I think another one that, that lines up on the stats as well, I think that we've got a small um, amount left in is the star turn, Colt. And from Vinery, what did we pay? 280 for him? 280 for him. Nice horse. Alrighty. That's all you need to hear. Nice horse. We like that confidence. We'll go well over in Caraca. Um, we'll, of course, be pushing out next week. Whatever we get from there. Uh, but, yeah, certainly a sale we've had success from and certainly can get some value over there. We'll leave you to it. Thanks, you, guys. Thank you. Up next on the Ferrets Den, we welcome back uh, Katrina Anderson, track cat, our head of sports science, Kieran Ma Racing. Track cat, welcome back to the Ferrets Den. Thank you. Happy to be back. I know. Episode two, we're rolling. Look, we've uh, touched on the process uh, that goes into selecting uh, these yearlings and juveniles and brought you on just to talk a little bit about um, how we implement sports science and data uh, in terms of the actual training of them. Now, before we even look at training them, uh, one of the first things we look at is the speed gene test. If you could just explain that to owners. Most owners will have uh, seen it pop up in their bills. Maybe they've thought, what is this? We did a little video on it earlier, but just give us a brief synopsis of what it is. Yeah, we've been doing the speed gene test on our horses for uh, approximately three years now. Uh, we The two-year-olds first come to the stables and we uh, do this test. It's done by a company in Ireland called Plus Vital. And this looks at the myostatin gene, which is responsible for the regulation of muscle development. And there have been multiple studies that have been done that have shown that the makeup of this gene uh, will tell us their optimal race distance. So the gene test will break down into three categories. And so a horse will be classified as a CC, a CT or a TT. The CC horses are your uh, precocious uh, early types, uh, usually a high... Uh, you know, fast twitch muscle fibre, and those horses will race sort of up to a mile. That will be their best distance, sort of 1,000, 1,200. And then you have your CT, which is your middle distance, most versatile type, sort of a range, um, also depending on how much muscle development there is. Uh, those horses will tend to perform well from three-year-olds onward, but, you know, we do have horses that perform well two-year-olds short distance. And then TT, which are your stayer types, low fast twitch muscle fibres, and those horses generally won't be horses that will perform earlier. They're not suited to early uh, racing. Now, Josh, I'll play devil's advocate here because if I've bought, a, you know, that's a filly that's uh, by Tavistock out of a staying mare, I'm, I'm pretty confident I'm going to get a stayer. Yeah, it is. Um, and I'll sort of let Kat touch on that sort of makeup in terms of how they they can throw either side depending on if what we think the stallion might be we don't know what the gene tests of the stallions are that we can sort of derive it from um all the all the tests that we do get done um and we do often say it from time to time but looking at ability um this is simply it's not a predictor of ability and that's not what plus vital are um, looking at but we did look at that lens 
And basically, if you get a CC, a CT, a TT, their average of all on our database, which is a good sample of at least every category has got more than sort of 30, 30 horses, even the TTs, which are in Australia not bred to be TTs due to the way that we breed them, which is, um, you know, the sprinting profile of a horse. Um, but so a lot of those TTs are actually acquired from overseas. But in terms of ability, their peak performance rating does not differ um, in terms of their the average of each bin. So it's really good to see that. There is no biases like that. Um, in terms of the, the prediction of do they actually get into that distance range as plus vital, um, say, is is about 75%. So, you know, you're sort of looking at three three out of four correct in terms of predictions. There are those ones incorrectly that are, you know, the odd anomalies. But um, for most of the time, um, it's a great predictor. Um, and it really helps Kieran, Dave, um, the racing managers really help place these horses. And it is interesting when you hear the trainers, the assistant trainers think, you know, this horse will be, a, oh, that's interesting. I thought it was going to be a sprinter in it. It is a CT and you stretch them out. Um, and we'll run through a couple of those examples sort of um, later in the piece here. Well, let's get straight into it. And I did use Tavistock uh, for a reason as an example track out. We've got a Group 1 winner in the stable that uh, surprised us a little. Yeah, it was Ruthless Dame, obviously a horse that um, went very well early in her um, career and they had a bit of time off. But when we brought her back, she performed really well over 1,300 first up and then naturally... You know, she seemed like a horse, Tavistock, would get over a bit more ground and we sort of started to lengthen her and her training also uh, suggested that she would um, perform well, you know, up to a mile. And then, you know, CC gene type sort of started thinking about it and we actually then brought her back to the 1200 and she won the Sangster and that was another uh, example where, you know, that added confidence to... Um, follow those those gene tests and especially when you've got half to Ruthless who is actually a CT as well and sort of just go into a bit of why that happens as well. So you get your uh, the gene from the sire and the dam and so you've got sort of a so you might have a CC and a CT and I'm not sure if people remember doing genetics at school and you have your little cross where you get the C down and the T and it sort of has a cross so if you have a CT and a CT, you actually have a 25% chance of having a CC, a 50% chance of having a CT, and a 25% chance of having a TT. So if you have th- those two paired you know, and breed multiple times, you might get three completely different types of horses. That's fascinating, and it really is interesting, and it has it does inform us and gives us the confidence. Obviously, you know, uh, ruthless Dane pit by nose in a Group One surround stakes, as he said, uh, won the Sangster, and it does just sort of, yeah, I think more than anything. And when we look at all of these things, we're looking at them as tools uh, for the training team to implement the best program. Yeah, and I think that's where we've been able to use the uh, gene type as well. It's about optimizing the training, and if you've got a a CC a you know, precocious sort of you know, high, fast twitch muscle. We can train that, like the train the strength in that side of the horse. Whereas if you've got a TT, if you do the same training with those two horses, one is going to adapt to that training, and the other one is just not going to be suited to it. And then high risk of fatigue and injury. You're not going to get the best out of the horse. So I think that's also uh, something we've definitely used from the speed gene test, and I think we're also continuing to um, sort of. I suppose, nut down on that and really try and see how we can um, leverage that sort of information. And I think there's a long like a long way to go in that area. All right. If you're getting confused by all the CC, CT, TTs, uh, we've put a little diagram in the email um, that sort of explains exactly what Katrina was saying. Josh? Yeah, it's just interesting. We, we did a sort of our own bespoke CMR plus vital uh, brochure at English Premier last year and we grabbed out all our data and you know, we do have this large database that we often talk about. And it was really interesting sort of correlating the, the gene tests actually with their actions. And there was this big action on those on those TTs, which you would assume, um, and, and a lower stride frequency, I think. Um, and that is very common in that we see. And you are probably looking for more that, you know, you do want some, uh, you want horses to have a high stride frequency so they can turn over and accelerate quickly. But it's just fascinating seeing that, you know, in the seas, just that simple correlation, um, you know, it was a clear, it was it was clearly evident in each of those gene tests, and it's just fascinating to marry up with the data where 
it sort of does align with what you'd predict as well, I guess, TK. Yeah, and I also find that using the combination of the gene test with the action can sort of narrow down, especially when you have a CT, which when you first look at the uh, you know the range that that horse's optimal distance w- might be, being able to then use the action, you find you can really define and narrow down that optimal distance. So also a CC horse, but he's you know a big action, lower stride frequency then I would sort of think that, you know, closer to a mile would be more optimal for that horse. All right. So there's lots of layers at play here. It's certainly not hard and fast, uh, but it is a really interesting tool. But the topic of today's show is juveniles. And so we've, we've touched on sort of testing them when they come in. But what I'm really interested to hear about is how we use data and sports science and, and what we're tracking, particularly in early days and, and how we're training these younger horses. Um, so if you just start off with, I guess, the difference between and some of the differences that uh, we're now using in, in training yearlings and, and two-year-olds compared to where we were a few years ago. Yeah, a big part of training two-year-olds and their early stage in their preparation is just preparing them physically for the load that they will endure in a race. So our two-year-olds will come in for short periods, go out for short periods, come in, and in that time they... Um, have you know that stimulus of some form of concussion uh, for their bones to sort of start that uh, modeling process and and adapt to the environment the racing environment also mentally obviously just that um, short turner they learn a bit they go out and have a break they're, they're never getting dour uh, but yeah as far as since I've started at Cairns I've sort of seen that develop and has really confined like has very defined that sort of process of that short um, two, three-week cycle and also horses going to different locations as well, uh, getting that different um, environment mentally and physically. What point do we, we – obviously we use treadmills a lot. At what point are we comfortable putting a horse on a treadmill? Our two-year-olds will go on there uh, very early in their career. and Yearlings as well? Or? Yeah, when they first come in, they'll once they're sort of under saddle, then – they will be doing yeah, short sort of pieces on the tread and we've sort of developed that uh, process this year actually. We've sort of got our own two-year-old program which sort of steps up and they do, you know, short uh, frequency, like bursts of little sprints and so that sort of uh, complements what we're trying to do with the um, bone adaptation as well. <laughs> um do you want to ask me about the bone adaptation? Because then I can go into oh, yeah. it more detail. Yeah, 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 absolutely. Uh, what do you mean uh, by bone adaptation there? Yeah, so like the bone tissue itself is a very diverse tissue. A lot of people think of bone as uh, uh, just a hard structure. Your bone is your bone. But bone is constantly adapting to its environment. So when uh, a load is placed on the bone that is above the current threshold, that bone will respond and there are... A two different uh, systems in place that very they're different but similar and that's bone modeling and remodeling so your bone modeling is looking at uh, the formation of more bone so when uh, a strain is placed on that bone then there will be a response and that bone will uh, change shape or structure to to withstand that that load and vice versa when that load is uh, removed. So if a horse is uh, placed in a box rest, immediately that bone will start to adapt to that and then bone will be removed. Uh, Bone remodelling is uh, more along the lines of repair, so removal of damaged bone and then uh, replace with new bone. That happens when a horse has a spell. Uh, But, yes, when the horse is two or early in their career, uh, the bone is much more adaptable to that that, load load and so that's why that short you know high frequency burst give the stimul the horse the stimulus that it needs to to adapt to the load that they will endure in racing and then the small break and so that that's what has been done in research as well we're looking at you know some people think that uh, horses should be waiting till three or four when they have mature bone but it, they've actually found quite the opposite that horses that start race training at two uh, not necessarily racing, but if they do race, uh, those horses will have longer careers and uh, less 
likely to injure injury in their career. Really? That goes kind of against what, you know, you would think generally is that, as you said, like it was sort of traditionally, oh, we'd give them more time, et cetera, et cetera. But actually exposing them to those conditions, whether it's an actual race itself or simulated, actually helps strengthen the bone. Is that what we're saying? Yeah, it's, you know, the bone is much more adaptable at a, at a young age. And I suppose that you look at anything in, in life, if you try and teach a young child a new language or to play a sport at a young age, they pick it up a lot quicker and bones sort of is the same way. Right, have we got the study? Can we drop that in the email? Oh, we can. There's a few studies, but I can definitely find one. All right, one. we're going to drop that in the email because that's fascinating. And, and it really does counter what you'd consider a sort of general narrative. And I think just to touch on that is that we are seeing the the on the track sort of performance pay off this season. Um, you know, we've had uh, we've had looking at just purely the n- number of horses that have hit the track. We've only had one more year on year compared to last year, um, but we've had a lot more starts. We've had twenty nine starters as a two year old compared to last year as sixteen, um, and at, we've won five times as much prize money um, with sort of seventeen percent win rate when they do hit the track with you know the likes of Spywire. Uno's Cube, um, some great two-year-olds going around that we've got some, you know, some great sort of wraps on. Um, and I think it's a testament to the this sort of early tread program and sort of different handling of the two-year-olds this year. Um, and hopefully they really start to hit the track in the next few months when, you know, the real, real two-year-old racing comes around. How do we, are we able to sort of measure that, uh, what is it, bone remodeling, reshaping? No, but if you were to increase load too quickly... Uh, that's when you get uh, shin splints, which everyone would know that's quite a common thing in in the, our early horses. But I found the years that I've been at Cairns, that number is getting lower and lower, and it's really not something that we're dealing with very often. I think we're much better at um, optimising that load and monitoring it. We've obviously got trackers and we've got the treadmill, and as soon as we think that that sort of is we're overloading a horse we're happy to just give that horse the time because if their if their bones aren't keeping up then there's probably they're probably just not ready there'd be a lot of other things that aren't ready either and i think we're we're doing a little bit in the background with sort of these inertial measurement units imus um that they use in sports and and they do monitor them in sports we've talked to um you know the redcliffe dolphins about this who will have on a, on a later episode of the podcast and just looking at how they use these IMUs to basically look at tracking load when coming back from an injury and making sure that the, the athlete isn't overworking too soon when they come back or hitting an optimal zone that they're hitting above sort of the minimal to sort of on their, on their limbs. And we're trying to do the same in sort of racing, linking up with the likes of uh, Chris Whitten at the University of Melbourne and a few other research partners where they might find interest in this data and we're just looking at it internally ourselves to sort of manage these horses that can be sore from time to time and looking at our different training locations and how they differ in the in the types of the work that they do because a lot of the work that they're doing during the week, you know, they're not galloping every day. And we just like to know how, you know, the sand hills weighs up um, compared to the likes of our training locations, say at Fingal or the, or the beach in Sydney, um, up at Newcastle, Bob's Farm. Um, so we're trying to, to really measure and quantify how much it is not only on their cardiovascular, which we get with the, the trackers that we use, um, but also on their limbs too. So when you say inertial measurement unit, um, just break it down for me as a layman, my guess is like what the sort of the impact um, on the ground to its limbs or? Yeah, I mean, it's it's an accelerometer that's measuring the X, Y, Z if you think about it. Um, I said in a make three, it more simple, please. In a three-dimensional <laughs> plane, that's probably not made it any more simple, but thinking about, you know, up, down, left, right, forward, back, that's how it is. It's it's strapped to their each of their limbs um, and it tells us, you know, uh, it measures basically how, how they're moving um, and we're doing some research there with RNAO as well um, and hopefully, you know, doing a little bit about machine learning and helping their product grow as well. Um, so yeah, and we've bought a couple for ourselves as well, which we, we like to sort of use from time to time to, to, like I said, look at the differences between our training techniques and, and how horses can sort of, I mean, maybe TK touch on that, just how a horse, we put it on a horse on the treadmill versus, uh, on a, on a horse on the, on the gallops. Yeah. Well, I think that a big, uh, difficulty that the trainers have with load is the constant change of environment we've got, uh, We've got treadmills to use. We've got deep sand tracks. We've got 
grass that is constantly changing because of uh, rain or wind. You've got the sand tracks and no one really knows how firm or how like how that is um, having influence on that actual load that a horse will have and then also how hard a horse hits the, the ground. And I think having a measure of that will help us train and be able to, if we've got a number um, and we know how fast a horse is running on the grass track compared to the sand track compared to what they do on the treadmill to have the, the same load, I think that will be um, ideal, especially for horses that are coming back from injury and we're trying to keep that load really uh, progressive. Obviously, the treadmill is really good for that. We know if they're going 28 k's an hour, they're going 28 k's an hour. Um, but then trying to transfer that to the track and then knowing the difference between the impact that they have on the treadmill and the impact they have on the track and trying to um, yeah, make that transition really smooth. And obviously footballers, um, league players, they know they can control that environment. They know the the exact um, the measure of the... Yeah, the it's a controlled environment. Yeah. And I think, i just touch on that. I follow sort of, I get TK to give me some tips on my own training for my very, very, very amateur racing running um and you know i was you know on the treadmill the other day and you know you've got your wearables on and you do see that you are it is so standardized the way that you work and you get off and you look at your heart rate and it's it's beautiful like it's symmetric but then you do the same workout maybe outside on a on a running track and it might not be and you could be pulling back a little bit i know that's all mental we can't measure that. <laughs> Great. But, Great. but if you're on a treadmill i do find that you follow the the workout much easier um, and you stick to it and you're, you know, you are hitting your optimal, um, aerobic sort of, um, heart rate zones, um, much easier. And you do get that really great looking heart rate profile after it. All right. So treadmills for horses, treadmills for humans. This is what I've learned. Yeah. And, you know, touching on that, you know, with our two year olds, um, we've obviously using the, the treadmill and the, the speed, um, sort of doing little intervals and things like that. But if we actually had a measure of, um, you know, the impact that those horses have in a race, then we can obviously train the bones to endure that as well. All right, so Ma- Matt Welsh, let us put wearables on horses during races. This is a direct shout-out to we Matt can, Welsh. who's doing yeah, a wonderful we'll, job. We work with, with everyone. Um, but, yeah, it would be ideal. That would be ideal. That's hopefully coming in the future. Track hat, anything else you want to add on uh, juveniles? Uh, no, I think we're just uh, always a fun time uh, progressing our young horses and uh, seeing the future stars of of racing and hopefully we're you know hoping that we've got one that we can uh, model and and optimize and and se- I just love seeing them progress and seeing where they start and then seeing them do what they're supposed to do on the track. Absolutely, the next crop are coming in. We've got Magic Millions horses at Adrian Corboys. We've got Brian uh, raking in a few up at Ballarat. Um, and we'll start getting them into the system over the coming weeks and months. As obviously we spoke to Will earlier at Caraca, English Classic coming up, Melbourne Premier Sale, English Easter. Tis the season, uh, which is why we've made it our subject for this week. Quick one, track cat. You're back on the track. You got some races coming up in the next couple of months. How are we feeling? Potential uh, tilt for Team New Zealand for the Paris 2024s. I do have a photo of the Eiffel Tower sitting on my desk just to bit of mood boarding. inspire me. A bit of mood boarding. But we love it. Training is going well and I'm happy to be back racing. I've got another race um, in a couple of weeks. but And to bring the uh, listeners up to date on your time last week, you were happy with your time at Box Hill? Yeah, I think it was, it wasn't, not that this is an excuse, but it wasn't great conditions, but where I was and how I performed mentally, I was... You know, I finished behind two very, very good runners and um, also pulled up fine. So Achilles is all intact and all right. mentally it's brought me on too. I, right. I love racing. Well, the feedback is more posts on social media. You can follow her, track cat. <laughs> we want to stay up to date with your progress on the journey because obviously it's all about the horses here, but uh, you are on your journey and hopefully we can get you to Paris and... Uh, get you back it's been a long road back uh, from the achilles injury but we're very happy to see you back in racing and running time yes four years and so that's why i can really support gradual load is definitely important not quite juvenile anymore (laughs) but that's okay (laughs) 
No, I'm well beyond that. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks so much for that track cat. Actually, not so fast track cat. Uh, on the first episode, we did elicit question. We want questions from the audience. Josh, uh, we've got our first question on the ferret's turn. Yeah, thanks to uh, Alice Stewart for writing in to us. Um, just was writing in. He said, uh, you know, was there any data on the first prep of Deep Joy? What might to what might point to expected or planned for her next preparation? Uh, he was at Newcastle when she won 900 metres. She was a nice winner on debut. Very nice winner. 900 metres, two-year-old race um, in the slop, wasn't it? Yeah. It was in the slop, yeah. The I slop. think the slop just started. I think it just started boring just before the race. May yep. have had a bit. She was good. Um, and then she raced a bit flat in the English nursery, very hot conditions, big field, 13 days between runs. He was just wondering if he was um, any anything that have the ferrets have data ferreted out and uh, if there's any data on owners patting their equine heartthrobs prior to <laughs> heading to the parade after the race only. I've got um, a pretty big sample size of that, but I think let's touch on the first question first. And uh, Deep Joe's a really interesting one before we uh, get into the data from the race, isn't it? Yeah, very interesting. This year, just looking at that, um, looking at deep fields this year, they were up 20% year-on-year at Magic Millions. There was a huge spend in terms of the average spend on them. Um, For relatively similar book pedigree-wise, type-wise, could be a different story. Um, But, yeah, he was sort of average last year was 229,000 for his um, yearlings at Magic's, whereas this year, 274,000. So there was a big market push. I think there was some big buys in there, which sort of swayed some of those. Um, just looking at the median to the mean, looks a little bit different. But I think... Deep Joy was, was well below that. Well she was below what, that, 70,000. 70, um, yeah. And a strong pedigree grade looking at that. So, you know, that's that's one for where those pedigree grades really do play a factor. All righty. Uh, On to our data, though, because let's answer the question. Um, was there anything sort of from that race, anything we learned from that first campaign that will sort of inform uh, what we're looking at for the second campaign? Yeah, Deep Joy, she w- uh, was a horse that uh, really progressed nicely. She worked up the treadmill and always handled her work well. Uh, going into her first race, um, she had a pretty smooth uh, preparation and, you know, even in the gallop past her first up win, she galloped nicely it took a lot of improvement, but the you know the thirteen day uh, backup, you know we don't have any um, direct data to see how horses actually come through their run. It's something that we are, are starting to look at, um, getting different data metrics to see how horses recover and and get an actual um, objective data point on you know how they've actually. Yeah, we do take uh, lactates on our older horses, and we've got different tread work, but. With the two-year-olds, we don't have that sort of system in place yet. Uh, but as far as her data going into her second-up run, um, I thought it was all very good. She galloped well um, to the eye as well. But she was starting to feel sh- her shin, so I think maybe it was just a case of the the load of her um, preparation um, had just caught up with her and you know being able to then tip her out. And I think she'll come back a better and stronger filly and will then also have that data that she had leading into her, her first up run and her tread heart rates, and we can then reference exactly where she's at, and I'm sure we'll see a, a stronger, um, more furnished uh, filly when she comes back. And it's something that we do look at, that two weeks between runs, it's hard when it's such a high pro- prize um, profile like the, the English nursery that she did run in, um, and with the two-year-old that's up and running, it's you know two weeks between runs is hard, especially second up um, as a general rule of thumb. But we are trying to sort of monitor that, like CK said, and looking at um, recovery sort of analytics of how they recover, just not only when they have to go back to gallop, but also looking at just their day-to-days and things that you might see come up on your wearables, such as HRV, um, to look at basically monitoring, giving us indications of when they are ready to come back into, you know, whether they're they're ready to do something on the training track or on the racetrack again as well. Um, So, yeah, if we can get better with that, I think we'll be able to, really, really um, knuckle down when we can run them back two weeks. I'm not saying that that was the pure reason behind it um, because, like TK said, she galloped in between runs and, and her recovery was was spot on sort of what she was prior to that, that first up effort. So um, we do have those, you know, measures in place, but, you know, we think we can always improve and there's always, you know, data out there to be recorded and um, analysed and draw correlations between the two. All right. I've just had a text message come through actually. 
from a friend of mine, a uh, big fan of yours, Rich Hetherington. He wants to know, when's the black book coming back? He misses it. <laughs> the black book, for those that don't know, is something we used to put in the form cast where, because Track Hat, when she tips on the form cast, she's telling us what horses are going well. She's not looking at gates, not looking at speed maps, all the things that uh, nerds like Josh are looking at. Um, she's just telling us what horses are going well. And a much easier way of tracking it was the black book where she'd sort of have 10 or 12 horses in there. You could follow along. Jeez, if you'd had the tra- black book going last spring, track out, my gosh. Oh, don't talk to me about it. And it would take the pressure off my tethering because I always doubt myself. you got to have... Okay. And I have two and I go the wrong one. And if I just had the black book... you got to give the I people know. what they want, all right? And the people want the black book back. back. So we're getting... We might get a little refreshed graphic done and uh, we'll get it back in the form cast. Especially, yeah, coming into a nice two-year-old sort of... Time of the year, three-year-olds. Well, I think we've probably got more data on two-year-olds than we ever have. Absolutely. Especially yeah. with our um, treadmill program. Beautifully tied back into the theme of the show. Yeah. She's getting it's good at this. <laughs> yeah, very well done. All right, that is enough for this episode. Track cut, we've already said goodbye to you, but we'll say goodbye to you again. Josh, and, and oh, yes. To answer the question, yes, pre-race pats help. Pre-race pats help, that's good news for me. Yeah. I've yeah. had to be warned off course a couple of times for patting my horses too much. Right. I've got extra two running on Saturday, so <laughs> she can have a little. Yeah, She'll little have already bad. run by the yeah. time that people listen to this, so uh, we won't be giving out any uh, post-race tips now. <laughs> uh, hopefully you got on her and hopefully she won. Josh, thank you very much for that. Looking forward to uh, another episode next month. Yeah, it's been a pleasure. We've got some fun guests coming up. Uh, some big guests coming keep up. Your eyes Speaking of our socials. Oof. Yeah. Could yeah. Be, could be one of my friends. Uh, just a little tease. Oh, little head yeah. wobble over there. We've got, yeah, we've got someone maybe in the next show could be snacking on baguettes in the middle of the year, running around a track. Two anyway. times. Oh. We'll, just, we'll just leave that with you. Yeah, all right, all right. very cryptic there. Thank you for that, guys. Uh, thanks to all the listeners. Again, if you do want to send through any questions, you can slide into the Kirima Racing DMs on Instagram. You can hit us up on email. It is sportscience at Um, Yeah. All this show is all about peeling back the curtain on what a talented team that we have in here. And uh, that's it for the second episode of the Ferret's Den. Tell your friends if you are enjoying it. We're up on Spotify now. We're getting out there. We're getting out. Coming pretty official. Uh, thanks to Will Bourne, ahead of Bloodstock, for chiming in from Caraca. Track out Katrina Anderson, ahead of Sports Science, uh, giving us some fantastic insights. Bailey McIntyre, BMAC, a.k.a. Mustang, is on the panel today. And uh, producer extraordinaire, Tana Walters. And, of course, head ferret himself, Josh Cadillac-Kavanagh. We'll be back next week.